0: I want to introduce myself first of all. My name is Grace Taslar. I serve as the missions director for Nurses Christian Fellowship. Nurses Christian Fellowship is a strategic ministry within InterVarsity Christian Fellowship that ministers to nursing students on campuses across the country. But we are also a professional nursing organization trying to represent Jesus within our profession. So that's who that is. A little bit about my background. I taught nursing for 12 years before I went to Uganda, East Africa in 1985. <coughs> I went with the Christian Reform World Relief Committee to do community health development work. It was during the Civil War, and as soon as the Civil War was over, the AIDS crisis began. And so I was in Uganda doing community health development work during the crisis of HIV-AIDS and, and post-war. <clears throat> I returned to the United States uh, to work in Mississippi for the Luke Society. They have an exhibit here. Um, the Luke Society uh, supports indigenous healthcare professionals to s- promote health and the gospel in their own countries. And they do that through partnership ministry teams of a physician and a business person. This side, Um, they meet and set goals, budgets, and and work together on those projects. My work was to develop the domestic end of things, and so I was challenged with trying to develop health work, community health development work here in the United States. Um, Learned a lot in that process uh, and was with them for almost nine years before they decided to move up to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and I returned to my home base in Chicago to be closer to my mom and work with Nurses Christian Fellowship. So that's the basis from which I'm speaking. I I titled this talk uh, Community Health Development, a Realistic Goal or a Pipe Dream. They asked me to speak about training nurse practitioners and physicians' assistants for community health development, and I wasn't quite sure what that meant. We ended up agreeing on this topic, so this is how we came to this. I will address that issue within the talk, but it's a much bigger issue than just that. I wanted to talk a little bit about what community health development is and somewhat about its history. Um, When I began in Uganda, we were just post uh, Alma-Ata 1978, which was Health for All by the year 2000. Um, That declaration from the World Health Organization was written by people like Dr. Carl Taylor and some other folks who are Christians at the Christian Medical Commission in Geneva, Switzerland, got together with World Health, who was also in Geneva, to set a goal for helping people have health, access to health care uh, throughout the world, and they called it the alma At Declaration for Health for All for the, by the year 2000. The important thing is, is that Christians were involved in that declaration, and uh, they were coming at it from a, a Christian perspective of, of looking at uh, helping people develop in their, their communities. So what it is, it's it's community development that uses health as an entry point. It's it's not just health development, but it's all of community development using health as an entry point. And the important thing is is that the development is owned and operated by the community, not by an outside entity. So what it looks like is your community has all sorts of avenues of development and it has all sorts of requirements for development. Things like communication, education, transportation, recreation, um, all of those things can be used as an entry point into a community. We have chosen, because we are healthcare people, uh, to look at health and, and, and social services as a way of entering into the community for the development of that community. Um, I like to think that at the center of the community is also the church, and, and things re, revolve kind of around the church, and the church can be a, a focal point in an obvious way of doing community health development. So working with the church to do that is, is part of where, where we are in that. So that was my introduction into community health development. It was uh, lofty goals of health for all by the year 2000, and we were going to um, mobilize communities so that we could train health workers and, and get access to everybody um, in healthcare. You know, as we got closer and closer to 2000, it became apparent that was probably not going to (laughs) happen but it was a good it was a good goal and it was uh, something that we uh, needed to to set Um, I also need to talk about what community health development is not it is not located or oriented toward the community a lot of times people think if they plop down a program in a community that it is a community health development program no it's a program that happens to be located in the community, but the community doesn't own it, doesn't care about it. It's just there. Um, Other programs are oriented toward the community, um, but they are, again, outside and they're just directing their focus toward a community. That's different than what we're talking about. So it is not located or uh, oriented toward the community. It is not a clinic or a health center. A lot of people think that it has to be a, a Health provider, entity, uh, organization that provides health care um, can be done without that. There's a, Carl Taylor was at this conference a number of years ago, and and there's a difference between what, it's the kind of health programming that we do in public health that's called ver, what I call vertical programming. It's, it's programming that addresses a single disease or a health problem, such as malaria or breastfeeding or HIV/AIDS. And it is just focused on that one issue uh, and trying to get the community mobilized to address that health issue. But it doesn't, again, address the broader development of the community. It's just a thing that, you know, is a good health program, but it's, it's not health development per se. Um, the thing I like about community health development programs is that it it really models um, what Christ intended in missions. Um, the thing that Jesus did, is we have heard, is that he healed the sick and he preached the gospel and he went around to the villages doing it. Um, so it sort of models going to people instead of waiting for them to come to us and helping them to address their own, their own health issues. It has a holistic approach. It cares about the whole person, the family, and the community as an entity, both physically, socially, emotionally, and spiritually. So looking at all dimensions and trying to address them holistically. It takes health to the people, meets the people where they are, as Jesus did, as I just mentioned. So, okay, this was back in, uh, I went to Uganda in 1985. The Dal-Oma'at Declaration was in 1978. So where are we now? Uh, What were the challenges that we face? Number one, it takes time. (coughs) And a lot of health programming is not interested in giving a whole lot of time. You have a funding that says three years, five years, we're out. And often health development just doesn't happen on that time schedule in the community. So one of the challenges that we have is that it takes a lot of time. The other thing about um, time is that the teaching methodology that we use in community health development is uh, non-formal or adult methodology participatory education which also takes a whole lot more time. I'm standing up here lecturing to you. This is not the way I would be teaching in Africa. I would be presenting a problem. I would let you hassle around with the problem. We would talk about it for 45 minutes and help you come up with some solutions to the problem. I have 45 minutes for this whole talk. I can't do it in 45 minutes. So... um, Time is of the essence, but you want people to own the knowledge and own the information. And in order to do that, you have to use a different teaching methodology, which takes a whole lot more time. It does take money. It's not free. (laughs) There has to be someone who comes alongside of the people in the community who will help them to facilitate the initial process of assessment and figuring out what they need to do and how they want to go about it. And i got to tell you that for most communities, you know, it's not unusual to take two or three years of just going back and and visiting with them and talking things through and and listening to what the issues are and – Figuring out the political structures, who the key people are, who the decision makers are, all of those kinds of things need to, need to do that. And you need somebody who is probably, I mean, unless you're a missionary and can have somebody else pay your salary, it's going to take some money to do that if you're going to have that disseminate throughout. Um, so it takes some, some money to do that. Um, in order to get there it 's transportation, so you have fuel costs, you need some teaching materials initially, some of that costs some money so it's not it 's not free um, and because uh, often people th- say that you know it, it's it's inexpensive well yes it is when you co- on a cost per person basis the number of people you're ultimately able to reach is is you get a lot of bang for your buck in the end but it takes a little bit of upfront costs and it takes people <coughs> it takes trainers and facilitators and this is where the initial talk was coming in um who who are these trainers and facilitators who are these people who will take the time to work with a community on a long-term basis to do this? And uh, I keep being told, my dear friend Howard Searle keeps telling me, you nurses, you are just in a great position to do health development work. You, you understand this. You have all the abilities to do this. And I, I say, yeah, that's true. Um, and then people are saying we should educate nurse practitioners to do this. Well, I don't know um, too many nurse practitioners who go into being a nurse practitioner so that they can come alongside and do mobilization of communities. They like to go into nurse practitioner because they like the idea of curative medicine and being able to treat and care for people. So if that's your mind bent, then that's not the person who is going to take on the role of, of uh, a facilitator. Um, and the same thing for um, Physicians' assistant. some people say we should train physicians' assistants to do this. And I'm saying, again, the physician assistant is trained as an assistant to the physician, um, to, and they're not also educated in community development kinds of things. So if, if we are wanting that level, mid-level care provider to be the trainer, facilitator of community health development workers, then we we have to do something <laughs> about their education and put it incorporated into their educational program so that they are taught that that's a part of who they are as that level practitioner. Um, or you can have people who are trained like... Um, Dr. Rachel Perrell I met her last night. She just got her doctorate. Uh, Cedarville University is beginning their master's program in global missions nursing. Well, they're certified in public health. That's going to be the program. So looking, having a specific um, specialization within nursing or within medicine toward uh, this kind of uh, Community health development work is somewhere that we probably need to think more about doing and more about getting in there. Um, it was interesting when I was in Uganda, one of our best facilitators that we had was Alija, and Alija was a P7 lever. He, matter of fact, he, that meant, meant that he got to the seventh grade and left school to become a farmer. He was an excellent farmer, uh, just key. And he played the guitar well, he was a good photographer, um, great trainer of health workers, and he ended up, uh, when they opened Imbarara University Medical School, um, they hired him to train the physicians at Imbarara about community health. So, while he had no degrees, He was the best facilitator that we had, and he was teaching the physicians about how you go about doing this. So um, you can have some key people. They don't necessarily need to be academically qualified, but they can be very, very key in in promoting programs, and if you train them well to do that work, you can use them to do that. Um, The other people that you need to have is... Um, managers and administrators. When I worked with the Luke Society trying to develop programs in the United States, I learned quickly that you can have people who are visionaries who have a vision for community health development work. Often they are physicians and nurses who see the benefit of it, um, and they want to do a program. But quite honestly, when it comes to actually administrating a program, developing a budget, raising the funds, managing the people, keeping track of the vehicles, um, figuring out how to do all that, um, you need an administrator. <laughs> and uh, often the visionary people are not good at the administration end of things. So if you have a team of uh, people that work well together, um, one who is the visionary who keeps you know that out in front of you and you have the administrator who keeps the day-to-day operations going, you're in good shape. <laughs> the visionary people are people in the Luke Society terminology, are people who God has called to promote health and the gospel of Jesus in their own communities. When you find that person as a visionary person, then you work with that person to help him realize that vision and make it happen. Okay, so 30 years later, here I am, <laughs> talking to you, saying, okay, what, did we do good? What did we not do so good? What lessons did I learn? So the lessons learned. Number one, take time to mobilize and train the community health committees. In Uganda, we were so excited about training health workers. We went into a community, said, give us 12 people. We will train them. They will be your community health workers. They were more than happy to have us train people. Education was very well valued. We trained all these people, and then when we said, okay, now here are your your health workers, um, a lot of times the programs went downhill because they just thought, well, they're your health worker. (laughs) Yeah, we helped you select them, but, you know, we don't own them. So um, building that time to... um, spend time with the community so that they understand that this is their health program it's not the facilitators program it is their health program was critical and we actually the last manual that we wrote in uganda was the resources guide manual for organization and training of community health committees because we ended up having to go back <laughs> And retraining all the health committees and telling them, no, no, you don't understand. It is, this is your health worker. You are, you know, they are responsible to you. We don't want to hang on to them. And so we sort of did it backwards. And if you're not going to lay the proper foundation, you're going to be in trouble and you're going to have to backtrack. So um, just lessons learned. We get enthusiastic about our programs and we often jump in way too soon before the community is ready to, to embrace it. Second lesson, plan for evaluation. Gil re- alluded to that this morning. Um, we never did... I tried. I, I have to sh- share a faux pas. Um, we, we did a baseline assessment of my communities in the West Nile. We developed a tool. I had it translated into the vernacular. Um, we trained our health workers and asked them to gather the data in their community. We were asking for measuring the upper arm circumference of children and seeing how many were malnourished and how many homes had latrines and those kinds of things. And it was so funny because the upper arm circumference turned out to be hysterical. Lugbar, the vernacular language, is a tonal language. So when you put it into writing, the same word has a different meaning depending on a tone. So the words were similar, but the tone you can't convey tone on the written page. So... The red um, was ika, and um, ika is the word for red, but it's also the word for sugarcane if you put the tone a little different. And so um, the health workers, when they were reading it, they forgot that we had said it was supposed to be for red, and they were thinking when we asked about nutritional status, did the child eat (laughs) sugarcane? The yellow was the ugba, and it's the word for the... They don't have a word for yellow, so they use auba, which is the word for the yolk of the egg. So they thought we were asking about did the children eat, eat eggs? And of course, in their culture, children aren't allowed to eat eggs. So, no, children were not eating eggs <laughs> because it is against our culture. And green, they didn't have a word for green either. It was the greens that you cook and eat. So, of course, they were thinking it was for the greens that we, they were eating. So they, they were dutifully filling in these questionnaires. <laughs> Do your children eat sugarcane, eggs, and greens? <laughs> so be careful. Make sure you test your, your instrument in, in vernacular as well. I had to throw out a whole year's worth of data collection because it didn't mean anything. Do try to get baseline data. It is one of the the things that Christian programs are the worst at, um, probably because we don't have a whole lot of money and it costs some money for evaluation. And therefore, um, you know, we don't see it as a valuable thing. But more and more in this era of evidence-based practice, uh, they are asking us to say, okay, what difference have you made in this community? And it's hard to explain that if you don't have um, some baseline. So want lessons learned, plan for evaluation early on, collect your data, collect it post and, pre and post. I will say that um, in, when I worked in Mississippi, we developed a program with, again, this was not a community development program. It was a vertical program for um, maternal child health, trying to decrease infant mortality. Um, We were able to show that we decreased infant mortality in the two counties in which we worked by over 50% um, using a lay health program (coughs) that reached out to moms. So because we had that data, I can't begin to tell you, when I called the Department of Health and the State Department of Health in, in Jackson, Mississippi, and asked them for our data, the the lady on the other end of the telephone said, this can't be right. I said, what? She said, this doesn't happen in Mississippi. I said, what doesn't happen in Mississippi? She said, we never have non-white infant mortality rates lower than the the white infant mortality rates. And in our two counties, it was lower. She said, that just never happens. I said, it does if you have a good program. (laughs) When we shared that information with our our home visitors, our lay home visitors, they were just thrilled. I mean, they were just so excited that they had made that much of a difference in their community. It was a very strong motivational factor. So my encouragement to you is is do do evaluation. Try to plan for it early. Use it as a motivation uh, factor. Do involve the community in the collection of the data, if at all possible, Um, because if they are part of the collection of the information, then they own that information and they are aware of where their community is starting and how they are progressing. Okay, so you collect the data and you set the goals and plan with the community to to address their their problems. Lessons learned. Include community health development concepts in professional education. In Uganda, again, I came from a nursing education background, right? So I made friends with the local nurse tutors in the the nursing program in Arua. And uh, we would meet and have fun and I would go off to the village and I would train our health workers and we would train our our trainers and uh, come back and Have dinner with the tutors. And after a while, they began saying to us, What are you doing out in the village? (laughs) And we would tell them, They said, Well, do you want other nurses to be able to do this? And we said, Yeah, you know, that would be really cool. And when we did the curriculum revision in Uganda for the nursing program, we realized that we wanted that to be a part of the curriculum for nurses. And they said, but you haven't trained us how to do this. How can we teach somebody else if we haven't been taught? So um, it it isn't just a grassroots kind of thing. You have to also include the upper echelon. Um, And I was accused by my my mission organization of of being, um, what shall I say, Um, creating another cadre cadre of, of professional but you have to work at the upper ministry of health levels as well as at the grassroots levels, otherwise it doesn't take hold within, within a country. Um, so I, I just say work both ends. They have to come together in the middle someplace, but do that. Um, one of the problems is that most professional education focuses on the curative care, Um, And and it's very hard to get people who are curatively oriented to move into the health promotion, disease prevention mentality. We get a lot of strokes from uh, caring for people. You write home and you have, you know, across the way from the NCF booth is the pathology section, and they have all these gross pictures up there and and you know that's the exciting stuff seeing the this stuff that you don't get to see around here and treating surgically all those things that you don't get to treat here in the United States Burkett's lymphoma or Burkett's lymphoma was found in the West Nile there's a whole program of Burkett's. I mean you can go on and on and talk about how wonderful our treatment is and our hospital is doing good things people ask me what did you do well, I have a person who is still facilitating, you know, the health workers in the West Nile. I'm not so sure that, <laughs> whatever. But the exciting thing was when my, my director came and he went on a home visit with one of our health workers, and he asked the, the head of the household, um, so what has this health worker taught you? And he said, oh, she said that we should have a latrine, <clears throat> and so we built a latrine and we was got to be a very good latrine inspector dropping the stone down figuring out if it was 10 feet 12 feet however long it was that's very good you built a latrine what else did the health worker teach you well she taught us that we should put our dishes on the ground we needed to have a dish rack so we looked at the dish rack and then she taught us that we should have our children immunized and so they pull out the child immunization records and we went through all of this stuff and and um, I'm thinking, well, at least she did her job. You know, <laughs> that was good. And then my director says, "And so, what difference has this made in your family?" And the father of the, ho- the head of the household thought for a minute. He said, "You know, we used to have to go down the road to the clinic at least once a month with one of our children who was ill." And it was expensive because we had to hire transport and we had to get medicines and all of that. We haven't been to that clinic in over six months. And we've saved all this money. That's helped us to educate our children. So that's, that's the impact of a community health development program. And, and that's why, what did I do? I kept people healthy. You know, I didn't made, helped it so that they didn't have to go down to the clinic. Well, how do we measure that (laughs) you know other than an incidence of diseases of diarrheal diseases or whatever it is but that is what Jesus wants isn't it I mean that's what he wants for a family he wants them to be whole and healthy educated prospering flourishing in their own settings and and worshiping him as a result of it that it's his work that they are doing so that's that's where um, it is great um Health education often is presented, even in in schools here, as presenting information. (laughs) And because we give people information, we assume that now their behavior is going to change. Well, I mean, I know a lot of things that I don't do. You know, I'm a little overweight. I should probably lose weight. Do I lose, you know, am I watching my diet? Am I exercising like I probably should? Well, maybe not, you know. So what is it that motivates us and gets us to changing our behavior? And this was critical in the AIDS crisis in Uganda. Um, How do we get people to change behaviors uh, so that they uh, can prevent HIV-AIDS? Just a little aside on that issue, um, my friends in the Southern Baptist Church uh, wrote a little booklet with the, my friends in the Catholic Church, the, a wonderful Franciscan spirit filled nun, uh, wrote a little booklet called Medical Science and God's Word Gives Answers to Questions Related to AIDS. Most of it was scripture. And we distributed that throughout the country um, before President Museveni came. It was still during the war. So imagine disseminating this through through the churches. But the churches were the institution that was functioning in the country. Most of government and everything else had fallen apart, but the churches were still working. So through that little booklet, we were promoting abstinence. We talked about how um, in, in Proverbs, uh, if you move around with other people, if you're promiscuous, you get slim, your body wastes away. It talks about your body wasting away and others coming for your property. And that's exactly what was happening when they called it Slim and, and property was being changed. And they would say to us, oh, my goodness, that sounds like the disease slim. We said, yeah, you know. But they'd say to us, oh, you know, it's not natural not to move around <laughs> and, and have be promiscuous. That was, that was part of the culture. <clears throat> and we said, yeah, you're right, it's not natural. Um, Romans 7 says that the good that I want to do, I don't do. The evil that I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. I'm a wretched person. Without... God, in my life, I can't do any of this. And then we talked about how when God's spirit comes into your life, he helps you to do that. And that was the basic beginnings of ABC. Um, When Museveni took over, uh, World Health Organization was promoting condoms. The Catholic Church said, no condoms, it's contraceptive, we'll promote faithfulness in marriage. So is abstinence, be faithful in marriage, condoms if necessary. Um, That became ABC. It was the success of of Uganda. But I really believe that the success of of AIDS in Uganda was totally a relationship to um, God pouring out his Holy Spirit we were so overwhelmed. We, had, we did not plan that. <laughs> I will say to you, we did not plan that. That was not a strategy, a public health strategy, or anything that came about. We were on our knees before the Lord because we were losing so many people, and we didn't know what to do. We were post-war. We had no resources. We were totally dependent on God. And God said, you proclaim my word. I will not return it to you void. And behavior change was made possible because people's hearts were changed. And God allowed them to do that. So, again, the church has a very important role to play um, in, in this. And it's not just presenting information. You have to present it in a way that changes people's attitudes and beliefs and allows them the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives to do that. Um, if you are including community health development in the concepts of professional education, you also need to include the place of culture and health. One of the things that participatory learning does is it really gives you insight into the culture. We, um, we had a little posing thing. We had a lady who took a hoe and put it over her shoulder and walked down, and she would go like this, and then she'd go... Was it mine? And we asked the question, you know, what's going on? What's happening? Why does this happen? Does this happen in your community? And, and um, they would come up with all sorts of reasons why you didn't use a latrine. Um, you can build latrines. They would build them. They were World Vision latrines. World Vision provided the cement slab. They built them. They never used them. Well, why don't you use those latrines? Well, because if you're a woman, you lose your eggs down that latrine and you become infertile. I'm not going to go in that building. I need to replace the people we lost in the war. I need to replace the children I've lost uh, to poor childbearing practices. Um, infant mortality was high. We need to replace these children. So they weren't, they were, there was no way they were going to go in. And, and the, the problem was that my colleague was a widow who never had any children, and I never married, and I never had any children. And those were the two people who used latrines. So um, convincing them that that was not true was a bit of a task. <laughs> Thankfully, I had a good Lubara uh, nurse, uh, midwife, who, who was able to, argue fairly decently that that was not the way that was. But you, you do need to be careful, and you need to understand how the culture perceives things. Illness in, in a lot of animistic cultures is a, ascribed to curses and, 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 and uh, other things uh, other than our disease mechanisms. They do not understand how drugs work. They do not understand how germs affect our health and illness. And if you just go in and treat people... Um, without understanding how they are understanding that from a cultural perspective you are not helping the situation so having a, a worldview um, that is at the core understood um, that affects our values and beliefs and then affects our practices um, it's called now uh, that is the key thing what we what we do in our The way we practice things is based on what we believe, and what we believe is based on our worldview. And if you don't understand the worldview of the person to whom you're ministering, then you are probably not making a connection with them. The best book for that, by the way, is a little book called, it was on the bestseller list. Um, You might have read it, Annie Fadiman's book, When the Spirit Catches You, You Fall Down. It's about the conflict between the healthcare professionals and the Hmong people that immigrated here in the U.S. So the Western worldview is based on a scientific method, germ theory and systems theory, evidence-based practice, whereas the uh, African worldview is based on ancestors and cultures and, and curses and those kinds of things. So understand your worldview. Okay. Another big challenge is sustainability. This is the big word these days. Everybody's always saying it needs to be sustainable. Um, we're n- we don't have a sustainable health care system here in the United States, so thinking we're going to have a sustainable health care system overseas is kind of you know, a bit ironic. You want it to be as indigenous and, and locally owned as possible, but... The reality is, is, when I was in Uganda, we had to import all of our pharmaceuticals from outside the country. There was no pharmaceutical industry. In order to import drugs into the country, you had to have hard currency. In order to have hard currency, you would have some mechanism of an exchange, or you had to have some sort of aid, and, and that was uh, you know, probably not going to happen. So it had, as long as you had missionaries who had access to hard currency, mission hospitals flourished as soon as the missionaries left and tried to indigenize, Um, the hospitals became vacant, as as Gil showed us this morning in Rwanda. That's what happens when you don't have the sustainability issue addressed. There was some idea when I was practicing in Uganda um, to give health workers um, a little drug kit so that they could treat common diseases like malaria and diarrhea and worms and some of those things. Um, It was called the Bamako Initiative because that was the way that it had been funded in Bamako uh, Mali. Um, And they were trying to take this on a grand scale. And we fought that tooth and nail in Uganda because once you start giving people drugs to treat illnesses, then there's no motivation to prevent them. And I had a a health worker who um, was a medical assistant, ran a little clinic, and he was making all of his money for his family putting his kids through school, treating the worms from the bad water. He had no intent of ever protecting the spring that was there. So, you know when your health um, monetary system and your, your your economics are based on curative medicine, you don 't have a motivation for preventing illness so I, I like to say that we have to have at the village level what we 're really looking for is village health workers who can prevent illness and, and, and um, disease and and work on health promotion kinds of things, healthy living. And then that frees up then the health providers for treating those illnesses that need to have them be addressed at that that level. Um, There's another problem. Uh, We've always looked at things in healthcare as, as problem based. When you do a health program, you look and see what problems the community has, and then you try to address programs that address those problems. There's a new way of looking at things that has been around for a number of years now called asset-based development, taking a look at um, what's good in the community, what can I build on, and building on those things rather than taking a look at the problems. And and it's amazing. Um, There's a guy from Cincinnati who spoke at the Christian Community Health Fellowship and gave the example of a guy who was kind of down on his luck. It was an alcoholic who had been a, a mason. He had been a bricklayer. Was a great bricklayer, but family problems. Thing one thing led to another. He became an alcoholic. Was living on the streets. And the pastor walked by him every day, um, asked him how he was doing, and uh, you know, I'm okay, pastor. You want to come to church? We have a 12-step program. Blah blah blah. Come join. There's a soup kitchen come to the church for the soup kitchen no didn't want to have anything to do with that but the church was an old church and you know it was kind of getting bad on the outside it needed some tuck pointing and some replacement and so he the pastor went by him and he says you know I heard that you were at one time a very good mason that you know how to fix the church oh yeah he said I'm I'm, I can do that that's good I'm good at that he said, would you mind doing that? Would you mind fixing our church? We'll pay you to do that. And, and he said, no, I don't mind. And, and so he began working on the church, and women from the soup kitchen brought him out lunch, and, you know, time went by. And Sunday came along, and here he was sitting in the back of the church and listening to what he had to say. And before we knew it, he was walking down the aisle in this little African-American church. Because he was not seen as an alcoholic in need of a 12-step program, he was seen as a mason who had skills, asset-based development. I call myself, my role is the cheerleader. I come alongside people. (laughs) I help them get started. I cheer them on. I say, that's a great idea. Let's try it. Um, do, people need that. Everybody needs to have somebody to go to and say, you're doing a fine job. I, you know, I'm thinking about doing this. How do, what do you think about that? How do, we, how do we encourage one another? So cheerleading, don't underestimate the value of cheerleading. Don't underestimate the value of praying for a program. Don't underestimate the value of, of having partners who just encourage evaluation, continue to evaluate. The difference is between vertical and holistic programming. Uh, vertical programming is that those special programs and, and we are very good at monitoring breastfeeding and latrine usages and all those kinds of things. But uh, when you get into holistic programming, it's a little harder to evaluate. And this is where my work with uh, CRWRC was very invaluable. We were into capacity building and looking at an organization's ability to meet the needs of the people and having the people meet the needs of their people and their organizational ability. And you look at things like um, are they able to budget and how do they maintain a budget and those kinds of capacity issues rather than looking at the program and the outcomes. So looking at looking at capacity building issues rather than uh, outcomes. Impact versus process, we often <coughs> we're very good at measuring how many latrines we built, but we forget about you know what does, why do we build those latrines? Well, to reduce the incidence of diarrheal disease, and that's really what the impact is. So we should be measuring impact, not process. And data collection um, is part of that. We talked about that earlier. The role of the church. Um, I When I came back to the United States, Hillary Clinton was running around trying to figure out how she was going to reform health care. And I decided that the government in the United States was never going to um, address two issues. Number one, they were never going to address the spiritual care that people had. And often health problems are manifestations of spiritual issues, not the other way around. And so the church's role is really in providing spiritual care to people. The other thing, I think we're doing better now that it's gone on. But initially, um, the government was never going to pay for health promotion kinds of programming. Um, It was still very curatively oriented. I think um, we're getting better on that. But I see that as two roles that the church can have. I think that the church should be involved in health promotion and disease prevention, and I think that the church should be involved in providing spiritual care. I've wanted to have time for questions, and I don't have it. Um, I just wanted to tell you about going back <coughs> to Uganda 15 years after I left and finding my dear friend John Chiamba, who I had trained and built capacity. To run a program he now runs the chiatumi community based health care program in makono he has built with the community a clinic that is caring for twenty five eight hundred AIDS patients in the community using lay people to care for provide for their counseling and their care he has a, a, he's worked with Heifer project to get income generation things going he's worked with uh, other organizations to get sewing machines and train women to pre- uh, sew the school uniforms for the students. Those are usually HIV AIDS positive people who need an income, and so that's generating income for them. It was just amazing to me. And he said, Oh, but Grace, you're the one who taught us that. I said, I didn't teach you anything. I, I came alongside and, and, and told you how built the capacity for planning a program and learning how to do a budget and figuring out how to access uh, the resources that are out there for you to access. And you, you did the work for yourself. Um, also met up with my, my dear friend. Oh, this is going on. This is John again. I wanted to show you pictures, but I'm running out of time. The Luke Society Project in Uganda, Rebecca Waswa, who is one of my trainers, is on her third community. She runs a little clinic. Um, that she takes some of the profits from the clinic and uses it to fund her community health development program. And uh, she's a home visitor. It was fun to watch her uh, teach using the participatory methods that we had trained her in. And, and, you know, 20 years later, she's still using and training using those methods. Pretty exciting. And I told you about Carrie Christian Center already, so that's that. Um, I'm happy to stay after. We've used up our time. I'm sorry I talked the whole time. Um, If you have questions, I'm very committed to community health development. It It is a bit of a pipe dream, but I would like to keep it out there as a goal for the church.